after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judah. During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judah, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go too and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they, the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and gold and presented them him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Okay, the Magi. This is our last stop in the Nativity before the infant Jesus, or as I heard Rob Johnston say last week, the one who makes the whole thing go. Um, but uh, we'll be talking about him more directly on Christmas Eve. First, we've got the Magi, or as they're more commonly called, the wise men. And if we're going to talk about the wise men, we have to start with some news that I think some of us might find a little disappointing. Um, the wise men are actually probably the least accurate part of our nativity scenes. And uh, I can think of at least three reasons why. So here's a picture of you know, what we commonly think of when we think of the wise men. And first of all, Right? Usually there's three. Always three. Um, but the truth is, we don't really know how many there were. We have no idea. Uh, there could have been two, as few as two, and there could have been a whole crowd of them. Uh, we really don't know. Probably the reason that we talk about the three wise men is because it says in Scripture that they gave three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But that's no guarantee that there were only three of them. That's just makes it easy when you're, you know, making a picture of them to have one holding the gold, one holding the frankincense, one holding the myrrh. But uh, we, we don't know how many there were. And over the centuries, legends have developed that have said not only that there are three, but that they have specific names, uh, Melchior, Gaspar, and uh, Balthazar, uh, and that they are certain ages, too. And you can see that depicted in this scene here. One is supposed to be old, one is supposed to be middle-aged, and one is supposed to be young. But all those details, not confirmed by the biblical account, they're things that just appear centuries later in, in writings. So no guarantee about any of that. Uh, secondly, we have no reason to think that they were kings. Um, often they're depicted in our nativities with crowns on their head. These three wise men all have crowns on their head. Uh, at least one of them in this picture has a crown on his head. We sing that song that identifies them, We Three Kings, you know. 
Um, but again, there's no indication in the biblical account at all that they were kings. Um, they are something else. They're magi, and we're going to talk about what that is in a little while. Uh, probably the reason people started to think of them as kings is because there was a historian who was writing about them once, and he said the magi are like kings, but they're not actually kings. And then number three, this is the big one. This is, this is the one where, that really deflates my balloon. Um, there's no reason to think that the wise men ever visited Jesus in the manger when he was in the manger. Um, Notice in verse 3 of the passage that Kai read, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. After Jesus was born. So not the night Jesus was born, not when Jesus was born, but after Jesus was born. And you probably remember from what Kai read that the wise men meet with Herod before they even meet with Jesus. So... You know, unless Mary and Joseph hung around that manger for a really long time, uh, the wise men weren't actually in this scene. So that's kind of disappointing, isn't it? I uh, remember when I first heard that, I was really, I was a kid, and I was like, what? That's, I'm so disappointed in that. If you're like me, you like to imagine the wise men uh, showing up at the stable by moonlight, you know, their, their jewelry jingling. And, and, and they come and they, they, they present their gifts that are just sparkling in the moonlight, you know. Uh, but in reality, they probably showed up when Jesus was at least old enough to crawl, not right after he was born. Uh, they probably arrived during the day, not during the night. And they probably came to a house, not to a manger. Now, if you're hearing this for the first time, uh, you might be thinking, oh, the nativity scene is a lie. It's a lie. I've been lied, for, lied to for all this time. Uh, and if that's your reaction, I can sympathize. I understand where you're coming from. Um, but I, I wouldn't say the nativity scene is a lie. Uh, if, we're, if we're understanding the nativity scene as the extremely literal representation of the night when Jesus was born, then yeah, it's, it's problematic. Um, but uh, if we understand the nativity more as a symbol of the story of Jesus' entrance into the world, then it, take, you know, it takes some artistic liberties, but I don't think it, it's, it's a lie. I wouldn't want to kick the wise men out of our nativity scenes because I think they add something that's, that's really special, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, but in order to identify what it is that they add, we have to identify what the wise men actually were. I said they weren't kings, so, if they weren't kings, what were they? Well, a good way to start answering that question is by looking at this word, magi, uh, which comes from the Greek word magos. Uh, and man many translations will translate magos as wise men, but I don't like that translation. I don't think that really captures the sense of the word, um, because a magos isn't necessarily wise. And I say that because there's only two other places in the New Testament where this Greek word appears, magos. And in both cases, the person who is a magos is not considered wise at all. Uh, they both appear in the book of Acts. Uh, one of these times is, is in Acts 13. Uh, this is um, a story from when Paul and Barnabas were on the island of Cyprus. 
And here's what it says, starting in verse 6. It says, they, referring to Bar Paul and Barnabas, they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? So, the word for magi in this story, magos, is translated as sorcerer. So the magi in the story is Elemis. And you can see why, in this case, magi isn't translated as wise man. <laughs> right? Uh, because Elemis is not wise. Uh, he doesn't have true wisdom. Because, like Paul says, he's a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. Um, now, he's probably very cunning. He's probably very smart. He's probably very educated. Um, which is why Paul says that he's full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. But he's not truly wise. So, that means that the defining quality of a magi, of a magos, is not true wisdom. Right? They have an appearance of wisdom, but there's no guarantee that they're actually wise. So I don't like that translation, wise man. Now, what the Magi were was not necessarily wise people, but they were people who were considered to have special knowledge. Um, they were people who were highly educated, people who, you might say, knew the secrets of the universe. Um, some Magi were probably like college professors. They were the academic elites of society. And some Magi, like we see in Acts 13, were more like sorcerers. Uh, people who claim to have special knowledge, and because of that special knowledge, they were able to manipulate reality and maybe tell the future and that sort of thing. So when you hear that word magi, if the first word that comes to your mind is magician, that's not really that far off. Um, here's the definition of magos according to blueletterbible.org. This is the name given by the Babylonians, Medes, Persians, and others to the wise men, teachers, priests, physicians, astrologers, seers, interpreters of dreams, augurs, soothsayers, sorcerers, etc. So it's a very broad definition, but the thing that all of those occupation, occupations share is this, this, this commonality of having special knowledge. Right? To be a magi was to know things that the common people didn't know. Um, it was to be especially educated. And in those days, the lines between being, say, a physician or being uh, someone who practices magical arts were much more blurred, uh, which is why you have doctors and sorcerers in the same class of people. So here's what we can say about the Magi for sure. The Magi were the academic elites, and they were held in high esteem by others. But what kind of Magi were these Magi that visited Jesus? Were they more like doctors or more like wizards? You know, what kind of magi were they? Well, it's hard to say for sure. 
but we can be pretty confident of at least one of their specialties, right? They were people who studied the stars. Uh, the thing that brings them from the east to Jerusalem is a star. Now you might say, well, couldn't everyone have just looked up at the sky and seen this star and been like, oh wow, this is an incredible astronomical event going on. Do you really need a specialist to notice the star in the sky? Well, there's a clue in the text that not everyone noticed the star, that it, it was something that you needed trained eyes in order to see. Because when the Magi show up in Jerusalem and they speak to King Herod, they tell him that they've come because they saw a, a star that indicated that the king of the Jews had been born. But Herod doesn't seem to be aware of the star, right? In verse 7, it says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. So, you know, you would like to think that if the star was this stunningly obvious thing in the sky, then Herod would have known when it first appeared. Or at the very least, he wouldn't have needed the Magi to tell him that. He could have just asked somebody in his court. But because Herod has to ask, that suggests that the uniqueness of the star was only obvious to someone who spent time studying the stars. So these magi were definitely astronomers. Uh, they were people who spent enough time looking at the stars to notice when something unusual happened. And they noticed something unusual in the sky, and that suggested to them that the king of the Jews had been born, and it compelled them to go and honor this newborn king. Now, the question that I have when I read that is, you know, why did they care so much about the king of the Jews? Uh, because they traveled a long distance to come and worship him. Well, this is one of those questions that's difficult to answer, one of those things where we can't know for certain. But I heard about one theory that really excited me. So even though this isn't necessarily for sure, you can't necessarily go home and say, I know for sure that this is why the wise men were so led to to go and visit Jesus. I think it's, it's plausible enough that it's worth sharing. So what some people say is that the Magi who visited Jesus were descendants of the people that Daniel worked with uh, when he was in Babylon. So if you know the story of Daniel, uh, you know that Daniel lived uh, during a time when Israel was in exile. And they weren't in their homeland. Much of Israel was in Babylon, had been taken to Babylon, which is a land in the east. And uh, because God had gifted Daniel in some miraculous ways, including the ability to interpret dreams, uh, Daniel ended up being appointed to a very high position of power in Babylon. Daniel 2.48 says, Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Uh, now, this verse was originally written in the Hebrew, so magos wasn't the word there, but there's, there's a version of the Old Testament that's written in Greek called the Septuagint, which existed before Christ. And uh, in, in, in the Septuagint, that word there is magos. So, Daniel, a Jew, uh, had been put in charge of the Magi. And if you know about the book of Daniel, you know that Daniel made some remarkable prophecies uh, during his lifetime about the coming Messiah. 
at least one of which actually included some pretty specific predictions about when the Messiah would come in terms of time frame. So the descendants of the Magi that worked with Daniel would probably have been familiar with those prophecies and probably would have been awaiting signs of the arrival of the Messiah. So I think that's a really interesting possibility. It's, you know, it's one of those things where it's not real obvious on the surface, but when you look into the details, it's like, oh, okay, I can see that this, this may actually be the way it worked. So again, what we know about the Magi, they were academic elites, they were held in high esteem by others, they were astronomers, and this kind of goes without saying, but they were foreigners. They weren't from Israel. They came from very far away. So these foreign astronomers, they see some kind of sign in the stars. Uh, if you search online, you can find all kinds of theories about what the star of Bethlehem was. And I debated whether or not we should talk in detail about that this morning. I ended up deciding not to. Um, if you want to research that on your own, I can point you in the direction of um, some, some uh, interesting videos and that sort of thing. Uh, but the truth is, we're not exactly sure what that sign was. Could have been a supernova, could have been a comet, could have been a coincidence of a bunch of different stars, um, maybe perhaps in a certain constellation that for the Magi would have indicated to them, oh, this is, this is uh, indicating the birth of a king. Or it could have been an entirely supernatural event that had nothing to do with the heavenly bodies as we know them, you know, far off in space. We, we just don't know for sure. And I am not an astronomer, so I don't feel qualified to, you know, say one way or the other. But whatever this sign was, the Magi saw it, and it persuaded them uh, to come a very long distance. If they came from Persia, they traveled over a thousand miles. Um, uh, it, it compelled them to come and honor the newborn king. And when they finally find Jesus, we're told that they bow down and worship him. And they offer him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It seems strange to bow down and worship a child to me. It's very weird. But they recognize that Jesus was not an ordinary child. Okay, so why does any of this matter? What's the point? What does the Magi's part of the Christmas story have to teach us? Well, it's kind of a, a simple lesson this morning, but I think it's an important one. There's two major things that I think the story of the Magi reminds us of, uh, that, that it shows us. And one is that it demonstrates that Jesus is for everyone. Jesus is for everyone. The Magi call Jesus the King of the Jews. But ironically, it's the Jews in the story who are the ones who fail to acknowledge Jesus as king. Right? Uh, when Herod, the Jewish king, finds out about Jesus, he starts plotting to kill him. Uh, we didn't read that far ahead in the story, but if you're familiar with the story, you know that when Herod says, oh, when you find him, come back and tell, uh, tell me where he is so that I can come and worship him, you know that he wasn't sincere there at all. It wasn't so I can go and worship him, it's that so I can take care of him, so I can get rid of him. Uh, and Herod, if you read a little further, you find out he actually orders the execution of all the children in Bethlehem under the age of two. So King Herod, highest uh, Jewish governmental authority in the land, he's not bowing down to Jesus. 
and neither are the highest spiritual Jewish authorities. Verse 4 talks about the chief priests and teachers of the law, right? Um, Herod asks them where the Messiah is supposed to be born, and they know, right? They know where the Messiah is supposed to be born. They quote this passage from uh, Isaiah that says that the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, but even though they know that, you don't hear anything about them going and bowing down before Jesus. So the only people in the story of the Magi that actually go and bow down and worship Jesus are the ones that you would think would be the least likely ones to do it. The foreign Gentile astronomers. Now I want to be careful to clarify the point of all this is not that Jewish people are, are bad or lesser than anybody else. The Gospel of Matthew was actually written by a Jew. It was written to a primarily Jewish audience. It is the most Jewish of the Gospels. Uh, but what this story is showing us through this irony is that Jesus is for everyone. Right? The king who is born into the world is not just for the Jews. He's for the people from the East, too. And some of them are going to honor him before the Jews do. In the story of the shepherds that we looked at last week, uh, the angel announced, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Right? Not just the shepherds, not just the Jews, not just the people in the Middle East, but all the people. And in, in the story of the Magi, we actually see evidence of what the angel said coming true. Right? Because we see people from a whole other place coming and worshiping Jesus. Now, I know today we don't really have a problem with thinking that Jesus is only for the Jews. Uh, we're more likely to have the opposite problem with thinking that he's not for the Jews. Um, but I think we need this reminder sometimes that Jesus is really for everyone. Uh, the culture that we live in today is kind of uncomfortable with this idea that there is one true God that all people in all nations should bow down before. Um, and part of the reason that our culture is uncomfortable with that is because we recognize that it's important to be respectful and tolerant of other people who think differently. Um, and that is not in itself a bad thing. That's true. You know, we should be tolerant and respectful of other people and other beliefs. But we can be tolerant and respectful of other people and still proclaim that we believe that there is one true God and that Jesus and Jesus alone is the exact representation of his being. You know, we, we can do both of those things. I believe we can. Um, and because we believe that, we also believe that Jesus deserves the worship of all people. Not just our worship, right? Not just the worship of Christians, but the worship of all people. You know, I was thinking about how in the Old Testament, the focus is on God's interaction with one nation, right? With Israel. But then in the New Testament, there's this incredible shift that takes place, where all of a sudden what's, what's been going on with Israel for all this time suddenly becomes so relevant to the whole world, right? It's like this radiation outward uh, where, where it matters for the whole world. And followers of Jesus are called to spread this, his message to the ends of the earth, to make disciples everywhere, to not just keep this in Israel, but 
to go out into the whole world. Now, what I've noticed is that what happens in, in some churches today, and I think this is due to certain cultural influences, um, is that we can start to think, well, Jesus is God's way of relating just to Christians. Um, and, you know, maybe that it's not really that important for people of other religions or other nations to hear about Jesus. And sometimes that, that perspective can be seen as progressive. Right? But what, what I want us to notice is that mindset is actually a reversal of this incredible shift that took place in the New Testament. Um, it's actually more regressive than progressive, because it's, it's a shrinking back from a more global perspective to something that's smaller. And so we want to be mindful of that. We want to avoid that cultural trend. In the story of the Magi is a reminder not to do that. Right? Because the story of the Magi is where we see that shift, that shift taking place from that focus on Israel to the whole world. Jesus is for the entire world. And the second thing that I think the story of the Magi demonstrates is that Jesus is superior to the world's wisdom. Jesus is superior to the world's wisdom. Remember, even though the Magi aren't necessarily truly wise, people do think they are, they're wise. They have an appearance of wisdom. They're the academic elites of the time. They're the philosophers. Uh, they're the, the scientists. They're the doctors. They're the college professors. And so when people first read Matthew's Gospel, they wouldn't have just seen Magi bowing down before the infant Jesus. They would have seen the wisdom of the world bowing down before the infant Jesus. And there's a passage in 1 Corinthians that I love that I think expresses what's happening in the story of the Magi. It's uh, 1 Corinthians 1.25. It says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. I love that. You know, human wisdom would say that the idea of God being born as a baby is foolishness. That's crazy. And yet, that foolishness is far wiser than anything man's wisdom has to offer. And when the magi, the academic elite of the time, come and bow down before Jesus, that's a picture of that fact. You know, intellectual trends, they come and go. Philosophical trends come and go. Uh, psychological trends come and go. Diet trends come and go. You know, Freud was in and now he's out. Uh, astrology was once in, now it's out. The Atkins diet was in, now it's out. What the world says is wise is always in flux. But God's wisdom revealed to us through Jesus that's eternal and unchanging. It's, it's superior to all of that. And so like the Magi, we also should bow down for it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for this part of the Christmas story and the way that uh, the story of the Magi just... Um, 
takes the, uh, the arrival of Jesus and, and makes it something that is so relevant for the whole world, uh, not just for Israel, but for the world and for us today. And um, God, we thank you for your, your foolishness uh, that is uh, so much greater than the world's wisdom. Um, and Lord, we pray that during this Christmas season uh, that we would be captured uh, by that foolishness, that we would be in awe of it, um, that it would be more and more beautiful to us and more and more true. Um, help us to, to appreciate it uh, as we're preparing for, for the celebration of, of your arrival into the world. Uh, we give you thanks, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.